It's time for America Outdoors Radio, the show that covers the outdoor scene across the U.S. of A. and the entire continent. Fishing, hunting, conservation, outdoor recreation, and great destinations, we cover it all every week. It's your country, your outdoors. Let's explore it together with your host, John Cruz. Welcome aboard. I've got to tell you, the next hour is going to be a lot of fun, but the hours after that are going to be even more fun for my daughter Faith and I because we are hopping on an Alaska Airlines flight and flying to Ketchikan, Alaska, home of our affiliate AM920 KTKN. The reason we're going there? Because we are taking a float plane from there to Prince of Wales Island, and Sportsman's Cove Lodge. This will be our third time there together. I went another time with my son a few years back, and it's always a good time at Alaska's Best Lodge. It's not just the great fishing for halibut and for salmon and for cod and more. Oh, no. It's the staff. It's the people. It's the great hospitality. And, oh, yes, the fantastic food. Seeing bears and whales and eagles and just... Immersing yourself in the wilderness of Alaska, yeah, that's a big bonus too. I can't wait, and yes, we'll put a show together while we're there and tell you all about it when we get back. This week on America Outdoors Radio, we are going to introduce you to a fish you've probably seen pictures of, but I bet you probably haven't seen it in real life. It's the sawfish, once common off the coast of our South Atlantic states and the Gulf Coast, but now only found in a small area of the coast off of Florida. Florida is known for very good fishing, and a very famous angler and guide named Ralph Delph lived, worked, and played there for many years. His longtime friend, Forrest Young, has written a book called The Ralph Delph Story that has just been published by Wild River Press, and he's going to join us to share some of the impressive life and time experiences of this giant of an angler. If you haven't been to Little Rock, Arkansas for a while, I've got a great reason for you to go between July 29th and the 31st. That's when the Delta Waterfowl Expo is coming to town. And if you are a duck hunter, a bird dog owner, a duck caller, or a conservationist, you won't want to miss this big event. Brad Heidel with Delta Waterfowl will join us later in the program to tell you more about it. And he's also helping us give away three pairs of tickets to this expo. If you want a chance of getting them, simply shoot me an email through our website at americaoutdoorsradio.com and let me know you want to be entered for the Waterfowl Expo tickets. We'll pick three winners after our last broadcast this weekend. In addition to this, we'll check in with Sarah Dorenzo with Wyoming Game and Fish because there is a whole bunch of outdoors news coming out of the Cowboy State to include a grizzly bear attack on a hiker, some changes as to how you'll be getting your hunting regulations this year, and the reintroduction of the sauger, a fish that looks a lot like a walleye and tastes like them too. And they are going into a big reservoir in the state. We'll top things off today with another record fish, and yes, it is once again another state record catfish. We'll tell you where it was caught and who the lucky angler was who reeled it in at the end of our show today. Next up on America Outdoors Radio, we want to introduce you to a very unique fish that, if you're like me, you've probably never seen before. It is the sawfish. And with us here to tell you more about this fish found in Florida is Dr. Gray Palakis with the Charlotte Harbor Field Laboratory and the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Dr. Palakis, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. The sawfish, I think people have at least seen pictures of it. You know, it's that kind of shark slash skate 
looking fish that's got that bill that looks like a saw. Tell us a little bit more about this fish and its historical range and where it's found now. Well, I mean, it's, you know, I always describe them as a shark with a, a hedge trimmer for a nose is what they look like. You know, they're actually a, a type of stingray, you know, as far as, uh, you know, their evolutionary relationships. But, uh, you know, they were found, you know, in warm waters, you know, basically from the Carolinas in the U.S. down, you know, through Florida. Uh, Florida was always really important for the species. And then, you know, all the way around into the Gulf of Mexico, all the way into, you know, all the Gulf states around the Texas is uh, where historically they were found. And, but these days, Florida is pretty much uh, ground zero for them. I mean, South Florida is, is where, where they're at these days. And, and we're hoping to get them, you know, expanding back up into, into that historical range. It's, it's going to take a while, though. What happened to this population? I understand they've been on the endangered species list since 2003. Is it over harvest? Has there been a loss of habitat? What's going on? Most scientists attribute the decline to bycatch, you know, an accidental catch in net fisheries. You know, there's no evidence that they were targeted to any great degree. I mean, certainly some people did target them and keep them, you know, historically. But, you know, try to think of a, a fish that would get caught in a net easier than a fish with a hedge trimmer for a nose. You know, I mean, it's it's just, uh, you know, their successful evolution kind of worked against them there, you know. So that's, uh, you know, thought to be the, the main reason for their decline. But of course, coastal development and, and, you know, habitat loss, you know, mangrove loss, those kinds of things are, um, you know, certainly factors as well. I've got to ask, why did they evolve to have this, like you put it so well, this hedge trimmer of a nose that looks like a saw blade? Well, I mean, they, they use it to feed primarily. They slash really fast side to side through schools of fish primarily. You know, we've done some research, um, you know, into their diet and it, and they do eat primarily fish. And, you know, you know, obviously it's a, a formidable defense weapon as well if they, uh, you know, they get targeted by a, a shark or, you know, another predator. But they grow really fast, so they really, they don't have a whole lot of natural, you know, predators. So that's the good thing and will bode well. Well for recovery, I think. Now, Florida has established a sawfish hotline. And folks, the number for this is 1-844, the number 4, then sawfish. Again, that's 844, the number 4, and sawfish. When should people call this hotline? Anytime they see one, they don't have to catch it necessarily. Uh, you know, even one sighting of a sawfish, it can be really, really helpful for us. We use the, the information we get through the hotline. As you mentioned, the, the phone number there. We also have an email, which is sawfish at uh, myfwc.com is another option for people, you know, that have smartphones and stuff these days. But those, those reports, you know, really help us with our research. Uh, like I say, it's used in a lot of different ways. Ways. We use them really almost daily. You know, we have uh, research trips that go out, and these are fish that don't tend to move around as much as some of the other species that folks might target. So, you know, somebody calls and says, "Hey, you know, we we saw you know one or two of them uh, off our dock." You know, we'll go there. You know, sometimes that day if we can, depending on where it is. But trying to respond in, in as real time a, a way as possible. And it really helps us um, get tags out on them and learn what they're doing. And um, like I say, help promote recovery. Last question for you. If somebody's out there fishing off the Florida coast or somewhere else in the area and catches a sawfish, obviously they can't keep it. It's an endangered species. What are some tips to help safely release it? 
Yeah, you know, leave the sawfish in the water, you know, try to untangle it. A lot of times they'll, you know, kind of do the, the the spin deal and kind of get that saw wrapped up. So, you know, as long as it's safe, you know, try to unwrap that, you know, any of that line or leader that's, uh, you know, that's around the fish. And then, you know, cut the line as close to the hook as, as safely possible. I mean, usually you can get some pictures or whatever during that process, but, you know, try to avoid dragging them to shore and using gas or anything like that, you know, tying them up, any of that stuff is just discouraged. Leave them in the water and, you know, release them and then, you know, uh, enjoy that that memory. You know, I've talked to many people and they, they remember where and when they were, uh, when they caught a sawfish. It's certainly a memorable catch for sure. And then call the hotline or email us, you know, and let us know about it. All right. Well, I know I would certainly love to see one of these spectacular looking fish. The hotline again, folks, is 1-844, the number four sawfish. That's 844, the number four sawfish. And hopefully you'll be lucky enough to see one of these sawfish too. And if you catch one, release it safely. Dr. Palakis, thanks for sharing this with us today on America Outdoors Radio. Thanks, man. Sportsman's Cove Lodge in Southeast Alaska is booked for the season, which means now is the time to book for next year. And you'll want to do so soon because at the end of a typical summer, the lodge is over 80% booked. The reasons? The great fishing, the wonderful location, the comfortable accommodations, the fantastic food, and the over-the-top customer service. You'll find it all at Sportsman's Cove Lodge, booked today at alaskasbestlodge.com. Hunting and fishing are exercises in hope. Before you head into the woods, you hope to tag out on a deer you'll have to field dress. Before you make that first cast, you hope for a big fish to clean and fillet. When your hopes are realized, you'll need a sharp knife. Whether you sharpen that blade on a power sharpener in the shop or a manual sharpener in the field, WorkSharp has the tool for you. Look for WorkSharp products in sporting and stores near you or online at WorkSharpTools.com. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nationwide nonprofit organization dedicated to providing hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under who suffer from life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. These adventures make big differences in the lives of those who participate in them, and in many cases are literally a dream come true that brings hope and therapy to their lives. Find out more, get involved, or donate today at huntofalifetime.org. That's huntofalifetime.org. Huntofalifetime.org. Wedding rings? I've had as many as I've got fingers on my hands. I started off with the Wedding Ring Classic, of course. That smooth blade from Indiana. That beaded body. The sharp hook. We caught a lot of trout together over the years, but then that patented smile blade wedding ring, well, let's just say it took my fancy, along with the trout and the kokanee. Now I'm going through this new age sort of phase. You might say I'm hooked on the new high UV colored wedding rings and I'm catching more fish than ever. So yeah, I've got a whole bunch of wedding rings. You should get some too. Don't look at the jewelry store though. These wedding ring spinners are from Max Lure and you'll find them at the sporting goods store near you or online at maxlure.com. 
Welcome back to America Outdoors Radio. We've got Forrest Young on the line coming at us today from Marathon, Florida. He's the author of a new book available from Wild River Press called Master Angler, the Ralph Delp Story. Forrest, welcome to the show. Hey, John, thanks for your time. Uh, Looking forward to having a chat with you. I was reading some information about the book, and Ralph Delp accomplished a lot as an angler in his lifetime, but I've never heard of this guy before. Who was Ralph Delp, and how did you get to know him? Ralph was probably the premier light tackle fishing guide, if not in the world, certainly in South Florida. I met Ralph when I was just a young fella. Uh, My father-in-law charted Ralph on a trip that I was able to get a rare date. It's very difficult to get into his schedule because back then he was probably the most in-demand guide in the Keys. And uh, we were able to secure a spot where somebody had canceled at the last minute. We ran down there on our first trip and it was just fantastic. And I fished with him then for the next 40 years. Oh my goodness. What did he like to fish for? What were most of his trips? I understand he did a lot of light tackle shark fishing, but what else did he go after? Ralph was unusual in that he not only pioneered, but was expert in many different kinds of fishing. And this ranged from little tiny trout in trickles in Montana and Alberta and British Columbia out to giant bluefin tuna off of Cape Cod or swordfish off the Keys and blue marlin. And then that will also range into tarpon permit, bonefish, and all of the other highly migratory species that run through the Florida Keys during the various seasons that we have. He was pretty much a master of everything. It was unbelievable. Not only that, I understand that Ralph set a world record and then broke it on the same day tarpon fishing. Share this great story with us. Actually, he did it as a guide. He was guiding uh, Captain Stu Apt. In fact, I just got back from a trip fishing with Captain Stu. And Ralph would guide Stu to these big fish off of Homosassa. And as I recall, many anglers would be fishing with 16-pound tippets and 20-pound tippets. Well, Stu preferred to use 12-pound. And both of those records that are pictured in the book and perhaps in the review that you may have read were caught on a 12-pound tippet, which is basically the same weight line that most guys use for bass fishing. Right. Unbelievable. How big were these tarpon? I don't remember specifically because I don't have the book in front of me, but they were in the 140, 150 pound range, you know, a fish that was beyond 10 to 1. When we were doing records or tournament fishing, any fish that had a 10 to 1 ratio of weight to line breaking strength was an extremely significant catch. If you could use 12 pound tests, and catch a 120-pound fish, that's a 10 to 1. Whereas the fish that Stu caught were 12 or 14 to 1, which makes it even more impressive. Yeah, color me impressed. Again, especially getting two on the same day. Now, something Mm -hmm. else that Ralph was known for was innovations and inventions when it came to the center console inshore sport fishing boat. What did those boats look like when he started, and what were some of the innovations he brought to the industry? Well, as you may consider, it was an evolution. Ralph started out in relatively small inshore boats uh, that were common in the 50s, 12, 14 feet long with a small outboard with a handheld tiller. And it went from that to refinements and increases of size. And as uh, you know, my awareness with Ralph is that he was a materials scientist. He was an engineer. He was the supervising engineer for a number of commercial projects including the construction of the Bay of Honda Bridge in the Florida Keys, which is about a two-and-a-half-mile span. So Ralph supervised the construction of that, and in the process of his work, 
he became expert in all manners of materials. So with this ability and with this ability to design and innovate, I think he's largely responsible for many of the evolutions that has turned into the modern sports fishing center console boat. Very impressive indeed. Now, in addition to all this, I understand that Ralph was one of the first people to test and then start promoting fluorocarbon line, which is definitely one of the most popular lines out there today. Mm -hmm. He represented a number of different tackle manufacturers, and a Japanese company got in touch with him and sent him these big spools of this line. I remember seeing it on his boat, and I asked him, you know, Ralph, what is that stuff? Ah, it's some line we're testing, no big deal. And it ended up pretty much taking over the industry in form of leaders for fishing. And I believe the line itself, the invention, was an accident. And the application, this fishing line, was just merely serendipitous. But it's great stuff. I mean, I use it all the time. And, uh, you know, the history behind my buddy being the first guy to use it is pretty cool. We're talking to Forrest Young, the author of Master Angler, the Ralph Delp story. And as you've just heard, Ralph Delp was one incredible human being and angler. Now... I understand that he was a guide in South Florida, but he caught the steelhead bug, and you and him went to the Pacific Northwest up to British Columbia for some steelhead fishing. Is that right? Yes, we did that extensively. We began in about 2006, and prior to that, Ralph had guided trout fishing on the Bighorn, the Madison, the Henry's Fork, the Missouri, and a number of other rivers in Montana. He would bring the guys that he would fish in Key West, and he'd bring them out to Montana to specifically learn how to fly fish. It was his theory that if you got out and fished for trout, you'd be casting a thousand times a day, whereas down in South Florida, casting for tarpon or bonefish or any of the species we fish for, you might cast a dozen or two times a day on a good day. And it just isn't enough practice in order to get good. And it was his idea that give me a week and I'll turn you into a proficient fly caster. And uh, exactly what he did. And he did that for me. My first trip to the Bighorn was in 81 or 82. And from then on in, I had the bug uh, deeply embedded in my soul. He called me one time, 2005, 2006, and I said, hey, Forrest, I'm looking at these videos on YouTube, and I see these guys catching steelhead and big coho salmon in B.C., and what do you think we go up there? And I said, well, I'm game for anything because we normally spent summers together anyway. So uh, we left his house in Bozeman and uh, headed north, and we ended up spending six weeks the, uh, the first trip learning how to catch the Pacific steelhead. They are not an easy fish to catch, but I'll tell you what, there are definitely some giants still to be found in British Columbia. You were in the right place for that. When did he pass away? He died in 2016. Well, I wish I could have met him because he sounds like an incredible man, but God bless you for sharing his story, and this will be quite a, a legacy for him to have his story in print through Wild River Press. And folks, if you want to get a copy of this book and learn more about Ralph Delp, just look for Master Angler, the Ralph Delp story at wildriverpress.com. It is for sale now. It's a brand new book. Again, Master Angler, the Ralph Delp story by Forrest Young, available at wildriverpress.com. Forrest, thanks for sharing this with us today on America Outdoors Radio. Sure thing. It's been a pleasure talking to you, sir, and talking about my buddy. This portion of the show was brought to you by our friends at WorkSharp. Now, as you might imagine, Ralph Delph as a fishing guide, he cleaned thousands of fish for his clients. And you know that he, of all people, must have valued a sharp fillet knife. And you 
must value one too if you clean fish, whether it be at the fish cleaning station or back at home or in the kitchen sink. And that's why you really need to invest into a quality knife sharpener from WorkSharp. You can get manual knife sharpeners that you can use out in the field or buy one of the electric kitchen knife sharpeners. Just plug them in and run that fillet knife through along with your other kitchen cutlery and you will be set. You will make that hard job of cleaning those fish a whole lot easier with a very sharp blade. Find out more about WorkSharp knife sharpeners at WorkSharpTools.com and look for WorkSharp knife and tool sharpeners at quality sporting goods stores, hardware stores, and ranch and home stores near you. Sportsman's Cove Lodge in Southeast Alaska is booked for the season, which means now is the time to book for next year. And you'll want to do so soon because at the end of a typical summer, the lodge is over 80% booked. The reasons? The great fishing, the wonderful location, the comfortable accommodations, the fantastic food, and the over-the-top customer service. You'll find it all at Sportsman's Cove Lodge. Book today at alaskasbestlodge.com. Come explore the Dalles in Oregon for outdoors fun. Hike amongst the wildflowers, bike our riverfront trail, or visit the Gorge Discovery Center where you can enjoy a live raptor display. Or even check out our National Neon Sign Museum. But don't forget the fishing. We've got salmon, steelhead, bass, walleye, and monster-sized sturgeon waiting just for you. When the day is done, tell those tall tales at one of our wineries, breweries, or restaurants and plan your next adventure. Find out more at explorethedalles.com. You're back in with America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. Our next stop is Little Rock, Arkansas. That's where Delta Waterfowl is having their annual expo, July 29th through the 31st at the State Convention Center. And I'll tell you what, Little Rock, one of my favorite cities. It's also the home of our affiliate, News Radio FM 102.9 KARN. With us here to tell you more about the Delta Waterfowl Expo is Brad Heidel, the Senior Director of Marketing for this nonprofit organization. Brad, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, John. It's great to be on today. So let's talk about this Waterfowl Expo. Is the public invited? What's going to happen there? Well, I got to tell you, we're really excited about bringing this expo to the Little Rock area. You know, it is one of the number one states for waterfowl hunters in the United States. So we're, we're going to be in the hotbed of waterfowl hunting here in the United States. And absolutely, this is open to the public and you can purchase tickets right at the door. So it's fairly cheap. It's 10 bucks for adults and kids 16 and under are free. We want the whole family to come down for the weekend. Oh, I love this. So in terms of the expo, one thing that sounds really cool that's going to be there, a decoy exhibit. Why don't you tell our listeners what this is all about? Absolutely. We've got a gentleman named Pat Gregory, who's a great supporter of the organization. And on top of that, one of the foremost decoy carvers here in the United States. And he's going to be coming down and showing people exactly what he does from start to finish and how he's carving his decoys all the way to uh, completely finished as a painted decoy. And then he'll also have some of his precious decoys from actually straight from the Delta Marsh from when people started hunting up there way, way, way back in roughly 1911. Now, it's a pretty neat display. The decoys that he makes today, they're not wood, are they? 
Absolutely. They're all high and carved out of wood, and they're all hand-painted by Pat, and he actually hunts over them. That was giving me my next question of whether he hunts them over. Okay, that is impressive. That's worth the price of admission in and of itself. But I'm guessing there's going to be more to the Waterfowl Expo than that. Absolutely. We've got three different full stages that run all day, every day during the expo. We've got a Delta Waterfowl stage where you're going to learn all about the different programs, about duck production and how we do it at Delta Waterfowl. Then you're going to have a whole other stage just for duck hunters that's sponsored by Realtree. So Realtree is bringing in a ton of their pros for the weekend. So you're going to hear some great tips from the best of the best. And then on top of that, waterfowl hunting is just not the same without a good retriever. And so we've got a full stage uh, that's sponsored by the folks at Yukonuba and Lucky Duck, where they're going to bring in their top pros as well and give you some tips to get your duck dog ready for this fall season. Pretty neat stuff. Oh, I'll tell you what, I need to be bringing my Springer Spaniel to that one there. We could both use a little bit of work. So, Brad, all this sounds pretty interesting. Got to ask, though, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, they're having their World Elk Calling Championship. Are you doing anything similar at the Waterfowl Expo? Absolutely, we are. We are actually having the World Championship Cut Down Duck Calling Contest. It will be there Saturday afternoon. That's going to start at 1 o'clock, and that's going to be presented by Drake Waterfowl and Max Prairie Wings. So, that's open to the public. Registration opens up in the morning, so uh, bring your duck calls down, give it a whirl. Um, first prize is a thousand bucks, so that's not chump change. We'd love to have people down and see what they can do. Well, not only is it not chump change, but folks, think about the bragging rights if you come out on top of this one. Absolutely. Next question for you here. Let's talk about Delta Waterfowl and how you differ from that other national organization that's all about ducks, Ducks Unlimited. A great organization does wonderful things for habitat, but Delta Waterfowl, we are the duck hunters organization, and we are made up of duck hunters, period. And if it doesn't benefit the duck hunter, then we're typically not going to do it. What we do is duck production. So those programs that we have in place are not only research programs to figure out the best ways to put more ducks over decoys, but there's also programs in place such as our predator management programs and our hen house programs where we're directly contributing to the fall flight every year with more and more ducks. Here's something else I'd like to ask you about here, your footprint. You know, a couple decades ago, when I thought of Delta Waterfowl, I always thought of Delta Waterfowl mainly being a southeast U.S. organization. But your footprint has really expanded. I live in the Pacific Northwest. You've got some very active chapters up here now. We have. We've grown significantly. I can tell you this, that, John, our banquet system really didn't start until 2013. So the organization was basically funded by private donors. And now we have that banquet system in place. So people are able to attend those local fundraisers and give locally. But they're also seeing really what we do for the duck hunter in general. We work hard for the duck hunters, really just to put more ducks over decoys. And and people are really starting to grasp onto that. Something else I've noticed about Delta Waterfowls, you actually have events at the local and state level where you're recruiting new hunters into the marshes. You're getting not just kids, but adult first-time hunters out there with certain programs and events too, aren't you? We are. One of my favorite programs is, is what we call our University Hunt Program. And this is a, a program where we go into some of those top universities that have wildlife programs. And I'm 55 years old. So when I was growing up, everybody who went into wildlife, whether they were a biologist or a conservation officer, 100% of those people hunting and fish. Now those people, there's only 30% of those people going into those fields actually hunting fish. 
So we go into those universities and we put on a program for them and we actually take students all the way through from their hunter safety course to time at the range to their very first hunt. And then we teach them how to clean their birds and eat their birds. And these are people that are actually going to be making decisions that directly affect hunters and fishermen well into the future. So they may not hunt or fish again, but at least they have a really good understanding why we're so passionate about what we do. I am so glad you are doing that. We literally have, in my home state of Washington State, several of the recent appointees to the commission. They don't hunt or fish at all, and and some of them, frankly, seem to have an anti-hunting stance. So to see that you're doing Mm -hmm. this, not necessarily with elected or appointed commissioners, but with the people, like you said, who are doing the work and making the decisions on the ground... That is really important to hear that you're doing that. One last thing, getting back to the Waterfowl Expo between the 29th yes, and the 31st at the State Convention Center in Little Rock, Arkansas, you're going to be kind enough to give away some free tickets. As a matter of fact, folks, we have three pairs of tickets, so six tickets total. We're going to give away three pairs of tickets. If you want them, here's what you do. Just go to our website at americaoutdoorsradio.com and shoot us an email with your name and your address and we're going to pick three randomly at the end of this weekend and you're all going to get tickets at least six if you are to attend the delta waterfowl expo which as you just heard sounds like a lot of fun and this sounds like a great organization too what's the website where folks can find out more about delta waterfowl and the expo that's coming up yep simply go to deltawaterfowlexpo.com and you'll get everything you need to know there All right, DeltaWaterfowlExpo.com. That's the website to go to. And if you want a chance to win some tickets, just go to our website, AmericaOutdoorsRadio.com. Shoot us an email. And with any luck, you'll be attending that expo in Little Rock at the end of the month. Brad, thanks so much for sharing this with us today on America Outdoors Radio. Hey, thanks so much. We appreciate it. You know, a single-shot shotgun is perfect. For kids if you're trying to get them into hunting. Matter of fact, the first shotgun I ever used duck hunting was a single shot 410. Had a hammer on it, shot that for a couple years, got some teal, got one hen mallard, and then I graduated to a single shot 20 gauge. Well, after that 20 gauge and me being hooked on waterfowl hunting, I graduated to a side-by-side 12 gauge and then a pump shotgun and Now I seem to shoot quite a few pump shotguns now that I think of it, but it all started out with the single shot. And if you're looking for a starter shotgun, check out what Henry Repeating Arms has to offer. They actually have youth model single shot shotguns in 20 gauge, just like the ones I shot when I was a kid. And if you're trying to get an adult into hunting, they also have single shot 410, 20 gauge, and 12 gauge shotguns available. And the great thing about a single shot is that it's really easy to use. There's not a whole lot required here. This also applies not just for ducks, but for turkey as well. And Henry Repeating Arms has a single shot turkey camo shotgun that is indeed camouflage with the official camo of the National Wild Turkey Federation and features a high visibility sight that comes in really handy when those toms are coming off the roost in the early morning. You can check all of these shotguns out at henryusa.com. They're all made in America. They're all rugged, reliable. They shoot straight, and they come with a lifetime satisfaction guarantee. Look for a dealer near you online, and don't forget to ask for your free decals and catalog, too. The website again, henryusa.com, for shotguns from Henry Repeating Arms.
Hunt of a Lifetime is a nationwide nonprofit organization dedicated to providing hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under who suffer from life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. These adventures make big differences in the lives of those who participate in them, and in many cases are literally a dream come true that brings hope and therapy to their lives. Find out more, get involved, or donate today at huntofalifetime.org. That's huntofalifetime.org. huntofalifetime.org. Ready to step up to a quality-built rifle or shotgun that's a true classic? Check out Henry Repeating Arms, American-made. There's over 200 models to choose from in a variety of finishes and calibers for hunters and target shooters. Many of these are lever-action models with a look right out of the Old West. Don't be deceived, though. Henry Repeating Arms are modern, rugged, accurate, reliable, and have a lifetime guarantee. Find out more and order a free catalog today at HenryUSA.com. That's HenryUSA.com. Campers, adventure seekers, hunters, and foodies. No matter the lifestyle, we can all agree on one thing. Great food and great people are worth remembering. At Camp Chef, we don't just make grills. We create each product knowing that a warm meal is always better when it's shared with those we love. Learn more about Camp Chef grills, smokers, and portable cooking equipment at CampChef.com. That's CampChef.com for a better way to cook outdoors. Country Hunters and Anglers. You may have heard of us, but what are we about? BHA is the voice for your wild public lands, waters, and wildlife. From national level policy work to boots on the ground projects like public land cleanups, we work across North America to uphold the legacy of our public lands and waters, as well as your opportunity to hunt, fish, and recreate on them. Stand up for public lands and waters and become a BHA member today. Visit backcountryhunters.org. Welcome back to America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. Our next stop today is the Cowboy State of Wyoming, and we've got Sarah Dorenzo on the line. She's the Public Information Officer for the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. And as always, there's a whole bunch of news when it comes to the outdoors coming out of Wyoming. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. So let's start off with the most alarming story. I understand last week a grizzly bear attacked a hiker in a surprise encounter in central Wyoming. Tell our listeners more about this. Sure. So unfortunately, a hiker who was visiting Wyoming was involved in a grizzly bear encounter. Um, It was a surprise from what our investigation can reveal and just surprised the bear. And um, he was injured and, and taken to a hospital in Montana for treatment. And I understand he did have bear spray with him. It's just things happened so quickly he wasn't able to to, uh, deploy it. That's right, yeah. He was very prepared and and an experienced hiker, but sometimes in those surprise attacks it just happens so quickly. And so we're really happy that he had bear spray, though, and everyone should continue to keep, you know, hiking with bear spray, especially in bear country. Right. And the other piece of advice for you folks out there is is make some noise. You know, the whole bear bells thing, I think uh, some people say they work. Some people say you find them in grizzly bear scat. I'm not sure about that. But I do know that uh, the last thing you want to do is surprise a grizzly bear at close range because this is exactly what can happen. Turning to better news, especially for those who like to hunt in Wyoming, I understand the new fall regulations are ready to download. 
The regulations are ready to download. They're all online. And this is one change from previous years that we we're not able to mail a copy of the big game hunting regulations to every person who drew a license as we've done in years past. And this is because the printer of our regulations um, is experiencing, like, like many printers around the country, huge supply chain issues because of paper shortages due to the pandemic. So we're not able to print. Um, we usually print about 170,000 regulations and the supply is just not there this year. So we're encouraging folks to download the regulations and use them online or download and, and print them themselves. And if folks don't have printers and then uh, come out here for hunting, we will have some available at regional offices, but it'll be a limited supply. Interesting. You know, it just seems to be if it's not one thing, it's another. When it comes to the supply chain crisis, it just doesn't seem to go away. Let's turn from hunting to fishing. I understand that Wyoming is reintroducing sauger into Glendo Reservoir. Now, Glendo Reservoir is known as a really good walleye lake in eastern Wyoming. Tell us a little bit about why the sauger is being put in there and how the sauger differs from a walleye because they sure look a lot like each other. Sure. So Wyoming Game and Fish Department is working to return sauger to some of its native waters. And one of those is the North Platte River system just upstream of Glendo. And, you know, sauger are super similar to walleye, super similar in the way they look as well. But you can distinguish a sauger from a walleye because um, sauger have black spots in their dorsal fin and a wider head, and they also don't have a white tip on their tail. Oh, interesting. All right. You may not know this, but I got to ask, how do they eat? Do they taste as good as walleye? They taste just as good as walleye. Um, and in fact, you can catch them in a very similar way, too. If you're interested in pursuing sauger, it's, you know, it's similar to walleye. You can fish for them in the early spring and early summer and then again in the fall. And their preferred baits are night crawlers, minnows, and jigs. All right. I'll have to put that on my list of species to fish for. Continuing with fish, and in this case, more about biology and conservation. You know, I have heard of tagging fish and then catching them again and trying to figure out their migration patterns, but your biologists are actually using radios to monitor fish. Tell us more about this project. Sure. So we've tried a lot of different techniques to sample and monitor the movements of fish, especially in the Powder River drainage. And here we've tried pit tags, floy tags, trapping fish, and electrofishing before, but radio tags are a new technology we haven't tried. And so beginning in 2021, Game and Fish put radio tags in three species, golden eye, sauger, and shovel-nosed sturgeon. And this is to track their movements. Um, all these fish are highly migratory, and so the radio tags will allow us to track them better and find out more about just how far these fish travel because, you know, though we can't see the migrations of fish, we know they're occurring and collecting data on their lifespan and how they move helps us better manage the species and also learn more about the interconnectedness of our water systems and where we need to do work to further enable the necessary fish movements and migration that we know are happening and that we can support. And sticking with fish, sometimes people put fish where they don't belong. I think we've all heard about bucket biologists who decide that they want walleye in a certain lake or perch in a certain lake, and they dump them in there and in the process ruin what is a carefully managed fishery. But other people have other reasons to set fish and other aquatic species free. And these people are usually pet owners who just can't bear to 
flush their little goldfish down the toilet. So they set it free in a lake, or maybe they're a, a teacher, and this has happened in several states, who has some crayfish from Louisiana that they had for the school year, and they decide to set them free in the local creek, and all of a sudden we've got invasive species issues, don't we? That's right. Yeah. I mean, most people who set pets free are trying to, you know, give them a chance to continue living, but it's actually very difficult for these pets to survive in the wild and they're really impactful to the ecosystems. And so the most kind thing to do with a pet that you don't want anymore is to rehome it or euthanize it in a humane way. Releasing them in the wild, they have a difficult time living, they might starve or freeze to death, and they just have such major impacts on the ecosystem. And, you know, in several places around Wyoming, we've discovered goldfish after huge restoration work has already been done, and that is a huge cost to the sports person. We'd much rather spend sports person funds on great projects like studying our native fish, like I was talking about earlier, than, you know, having to do restoration efforts again because somebody let their goldfish loose in a pond. Speaking of goldfish and koi, I used to live next to a 34-acre reservoir, and when I first moved there in the 1990s, it had a whole bunch of big koi, white and orange. I mean, we're talking up to, you know, pound, two pounds plus, but the osprey started showing up and found out what easy pickings these koi were because they were so easy to see. And within three years, all of the koi were gone from the lake. So if you're looking for a suggestion, maybe enlist some osprey and put them to work to get rid of those goldfish that are showing up in your lakes and ponds in Wyoming. Yeah, I mean, it's just a huge cost. It's a huge cost to the sports person. It's a huge cost to any state that has to deal with, you know, an illegally introduced species. And it's something that we're working really hard in Wyoming to discourage, especially given, you know, a couple of years ago when we identified zebra mussels in aquarium plants. And so when folks are, you know, dumping their aquariums into ponds, you know, there could be other species in there that are small enough that they can't see that can grow to become a huge issue too. And so we really encourage folks not to dump their aquariums or their pets um, in the wild and just dispose of aquarium water properly as well. There's a couple more stories I was hoping to get to to include the fact that Saratoga Lake between Rawlins and Cheyenne is actually open for a couple months for fishing with no limits, no possession limit, because going back to bucket biology, perch ended up in a lake where they don't belong. And so they're going to treat it with rotenone this fall. But we'll have to save the details of that story and other ones for another time. In the meantime, if you want to find out what's going on in the great state of Wyoming when it comes to fishing, hunting, and conservation, just Google the Wyoming Game and Fish website. When you get there, you're going to find a tab that says News. And click on that. You'll see all the information that Sarah and the other public information officers have gathered around the state of Wyoming to share with you. Again, just Google Wyoming Game and Fish and check out what they've got for you in the world of fishing, hunting, and conservation in the Cowboy State. Sarah, thanks as always for sharing your time with us on America Outdoors Radio. Thank you. Next up, it's another week and another record channel catfish to tell you about. It's record fish time. This time, the new state record comes to us from West Virginia, where the State Department of Natural Resources reports a 17-year-old record for the largest channel cat caught in West Virginia has been broken. 
On June 20th, Alan Burkett of Criders, Virginia, caught the channel cat that weighed 36.96 pounds and measured 40.59 inches in length. Burkett was fishing with chicken liver from the shore of South Mill Creek Lake in Grant County, and his record fish was measured by DNR fishery biologist Brandon Keplinger. The previous record channel catfish of 33.42 pounds and 40.3 inches was caught by Michael Sears in 2005 at Patterson Creek in West Virginia. Our thanks to the West Virginia Department of Natural Resources and the Outdoor News Daily for this record fish report. Congratulations on your new record. And on that note, I've got to go because my daughter Faith and I have got a plane to catch to get to Sportsman's Cove Lodge on Prince of Wales Island in Alaska. It's going to be a great trip. Here's hoping you are blessed and that you get to have some great trips or outings too in the week ahead. After all, it is your country and your outdoors, so get out there and enjoy it. (laughs) 